Today's scripture is Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may sin, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, College Park. <laughs> Pretty nice duds, huh? <laughs> so I went to India and came back papal, I guess, huh? So something happened. So. Hey, uh, some uh, wonderful Indian brothers uh, gave uh, a team member on our team uh, this outfit, um, and uh, it's a size 44, and he's like a size 34. It was dragging on the ground, and uh, so when I put it on, the team said, you've got to wear that on Sunday. So I did it uh, to honor them and also to honor some folks that I was able to see this week um, in India. Thanks for praying for us and for that team. You just need to know that if any of you gave money to the Indian project, the Christmas offering, um, I think it was last year, your dollars are being well spent. Uh, there's some unbelievable work going on um, in, that, in that area of the world. Um, I got to meet a young man whose parents are presently in hiding in the forest of Orissa. Uh, because of persecution, churches have been burned, thousands of homes have been destroyed, Christians are fleeing for their lives, about 40,000 people are displaced, and um, God is at work, the, the people have been killed for the faith, and uh, when I was preaching there um, in the chapel service at the seminary, I, I said to my boys, uh, our two sons were with me, um, Hayden and Joseph, I said, son, you need to know that in the audience are men who will likely give their lives for the cause of Christ. So that, that changed the environment a little bit of me speaking and, and, and preaching in that context. And I also, just one little story, was able to go on site to a city. I, I can't tell you the name because of security uh, issues. But I was at a, at a particular city where NTC had established a Christian school. And they're using education as the way to get into a city. And from that particular um, kind of base camp of education are planting churches and even having a training center. I couldn't even go to the training center because of the uh, security issues that were related to that. Um, this particular community has never had any gospel witness in it. In fact, the Hindu uh, prince that used to rule that area uh, paid tribute to the British government as a guarantee that no missionary would be allowed in that region. And this particular school is the first gospel witness ever in that particular region. And it was just stunning to be on the ground thinking that we are in the middle of history of missions right now, bringing the light of the gospel. It was unbelievable. And so just know that your money and our resources is just unbelievably uh, being used to the glory of God there. So thanks for praying and continue to pray for our beloved brothers in India who are bearing the name of Christ and suffering significantly under the weight of persecution. God is alive and well around the world. And uh, I hope you know that the kingdom of God is a lot bigger than what's happening here in Indianapolis. And at the same time, um, you as a church, and we together have seen some great things that God's been able to do. I was so privileged just to see with my own eyes, the level of impact that, that we've been able to have. And that's just a, a tribute to the glory of God and uh, the stewardship that he's entrusted to us. Well, we're in Colossians today. This is the uh, Colossians 4, and we have two more messages, and we're done with this book. Next week, we wrap it up and uh, close the chapter in the history of College Park Church on the series called The Core. So I invite you to take your Bibles and go over to Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 15. And uh, as you're turning there, let me ask the Lord to help us today. 
Father, with uh, a frail uh, physical um, state today and a tired mind, I pray for extra clarity. I pray that through jet lag, your uh, word would be clear. Thank you that dependency and inadequacy creates an opportunity for the glory of your word and the glory of Christ to be even clearer. So do that today, I pray. I ask that you would emblaze upon our hearts the importance of doing ministry together and that you would um, release from this congregation a group of people who want to be refreshing to one another. Lord, guard us from those who would disappoint us and abandon the gospel And I pray for brothers and sisters today who are in recovery, who have baggage in their past, that today you give them hope that there's ministry that can be done. It may not be done today or tomorrow or a year, but it will come if we simply are humble and wait to be restored. So God, help us to see the beauty of laboring together, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Schultz was the masterful creator of the comic strip Peanuts. Um, He had a beautiful way of taking characters like Charlie Brown and Lucy and Linus and communicating not only a funny story, but at times a meaningful truth about life. One of my favorite comic strips is a conversation between Charlie Brown and the ever-volatile, angry uh, Lucy. Remember her? Her favorite phrase for Chuck was, you blockhead. Remember her? And she's always upset, and, and, and Chuck or Charlie Brown was trying to give her some counsel, trying to help her the, to be kinder to people. And he said this. He said, Lucy, you have to be more loving. The world needs love, Lucy. Make the world a better place. Love somebody else, Lucy. And that statement infuriated her, and she screamed at him, blowing Charlie Brown backwards, as often happened, right? And she screamed at him, you blockhead, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. (laughs) I can imagine that a few times in your life, you, like me, have resonated with that statement. You love mankind, but it's individual people, they just get under our skin. The reality is, is that, that people can be challenging, And that doesn't change when you gather them into a church. (laughs) In fact, one of the things you need to know if you feel like God's called you into ministry is that you may love the church, but sometimes it's hard to love people. And in fact, um, Joel Stoll once said that ministry would be a cakewalk if it wasn't for having to work with people. (laughs) And sometimes we find that to be true. People are hard. They have baggage. They have sin issues. And we all do. And yet at the same time, while ministry can be very risky because people are involved, it's also incredibly rewarding. My guess is that your life, like mine, has been marked not by particular sermons or program, but more than anything else, our lives are marked by people. People who God has brought into our path at just the right moment, spoken just the right word, or who were there in the darkest hour of your life, and they were like Jesus with skin on. They were like the Word of God incarnated in your life. And in that moment, you realize that ministry with people is awesome. And that's the tension that you deal with. Is that on the one hand, it involves people and there's great, great risk. And on the other hand, ministry with people also has the potential for great reward. There, there's opportunity for great ministry. And there's also opportunity for great pain. And as someone who's been in the gospel ministry, the pastoral ministry for about 16 years, I can tell you that people are worth it. They're hard. It's difficult. But at the end of the day... It is the ministry that God has called us to, and the joy of serving together eclipses the pain of disappointing people. Now, in Colossians 4, we're towards the end of the book. And in this particular section, Paul is identifying some people who are with him. And he goes through a list, and you might just blow through this list and not really think about the importance of these people who are here, but each name that's listed at the end of this book has a story and and a fascinating background a lesson that can be learned from each person. And this morning I want you to see that within this particular chapter of Colossians are three different kinds of people. There are refreshing people. You know the kind of people, they just when they walk in a room, they, they, they bring life and energy. It's also filled with recovering people. People who are broken. People who've made huge mistakes. Who frankly have a lot of baggage. And yet they're in the process of recovery and God is still using them. And there's also one particular person in this text who's very disappointing. And what's interesting is you look at the ending chapters here of Colossians and you see this this group of people that are gathered around the Apostle Paul, the people around him look an awful lot like us. That at some moments we're 
really refreshing and helpful. Other times we've got a lot of baggage and trying to figure out how in the world could God ever use me. And in some cases, there's some people who are going to really be disappointing. And this morning, what I want to call you to do is to think through what kind of person am I? And in fact, I want to call you to be a refreshing person, the the kind of person that, that gives oxygen and spiritual life to other people, the kind of person that when you're seen in the hallway, people are gravitated towards you because you give life and energy. You don't drain people. We've been for a number of weeks in the thick of some theology of Colossians and some applications. I want to pull out of that for a moment and reset the context so you can understand where Paul is when he's writing this. Remember, he's writing the book of Colossians while under arrest in Rome. Acts 28 records the story. From this confinement, he wrote Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and also Philemon. He was addressing the concerns that he'd heard about in this church at Colossae and then also the surrounding area. He writes the letter because he can't go to the church. In fact, he's never been there. The church had been planted by Epaphras during Paul's ministry at the city of Ephesus. He's in the latter part of his ministry. Paul's ministry is beginning to wind down. About five years from now, he'll be martyred for the faith. In fact, what happens is he'll be released. He'll write 1 Timothy, Titus. He'll be rearrested. And the last book that he'll write is the book of 2 Timothy. And in verses 7 to 15, Paul is wrapping up his thoughts. He's addressing uh, the people he loves at that church. And this is a personal window into his soul and the people who are around him. And it's interesting to note the kind of people that are there. And from this text, I want you to see who's there and ask yourself, how does these, how do these people reflect or resemble me? Now, the first group of people that we have are refreshing people. This is wonderful. We have people like Tychius and Epaphras, Aristarchus, Justice, and Luke. You may not know a whole lot about these people. I didn't, in fact. But as I got into their lives, I was impressed with the kind of people that are there. The first one, Tychius. He's the first person mentioned, and probably because he's the most important, because this is the guy that Paul is going to send to the church at Colossae specifically to tell them how he's doing. He's going to be the personal envoy, the ambassador of the Apostle Paul. He's going to carry the letter and will likely read it to the congregation and then distribute the letter to the other churches as well. Tychius is a a man who refreshed other people. He was an encouraging kind of person. In fact, Go over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 21. You'll you'll see this reference here about the kind of purpose, or the kind of person, rather, that Tychius was. You need to know that he was from the region of, of Asia, and he apparently was a man of pretty significant spiritual influence, because when Paul took an offering to the church at Jerusalem... Um, He had various delegates from churches come with him to present that gift, and Tychius went along. So this guy was a a major spiritual player. Paul also refers to him in 2 Timothy and Titus as his messenger. So it may have been that Tychius had delivered a number of particular letters. In verses um, 7 and 8 of Colossians, we learn some things about uh, Tychius. But before we see that, look at Ephesians 6. Here's what Paul says. Ephesians 6.21, so that you may know, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister, in the Lord will tell you everything. Verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So let me ask you, if there was a hurting group of people, would anybody look to you to send you to go to them to try and help them and be encouraged? Are you the kind of person that can be entrusted with the lives of people that somebody, maybe the pastoral staff would say, you know what, that's a hurting family, let's send them there. Or are you the kind of person that honestly people would say, well, whatever you do, don't send them there. Verse 7 and 8 gives us some critical information about Tychius. Back to Colossians 4, he's described as a beloved brother, a, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. I love that list. A beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. The word brother indicates that they shared a common relationship with Jesus. Isn't that great? We we use the word brother sometimes maybe a little bit too loosely. In fact, in certain traditions of of Christianity, everyone's known as brother so-and-so and and brother so-and-so. This is a special word. The word brother means that there's a commonality between us. There's a relationship, an arm-in-arm camaraderie. It means that when I'm in India and I can't speak a lick of Hindi, 
and I don't even know what background these guys are from. The reality is we know Jesus together and we're brothers, even though we're from different backgrounds and we like different food, right? The reality is we are brothers in Christ. So when you call someone brother, realize you're saying something meaningful and important. You're saying, look, we're a fellow laborer together. I'm, I'm here with you. And in spite of our differences, our, our background, our different ethnicities, our different likes or dislikes, the bottom line is we both love Jesus. We're brothers. You know, around the city of Indianapolis, there's a lot of brothers, so to speak, that we can link arms with. We're doing that with Shepherd Community Center. We're going to do that in the heart of Brookside. And there's brothers all around that neighborhood who love Jesus, who we're going to do something and help along with them to make a difference for the glory of God. At the end of the day, what unites us in Christ is far more important than what would ever divide us. And what Paul says is, look, he's a brother. That's an important word. He also describes him as a fellow minister. That's the same word that we use or is translated as deacon, meaning that this is a guy who labored along with us. And then he also calls him a fellow servant, a fellow servant. The Greek is soon doulos. It means that he is a co-slave. I love that. You know, the beautiful thing about ministry is we're all just slaves serving Christ. It means that there's a, a fellow servant-mindedness among us. you got two brothers serving as co-slaves of Jesus. Listen, when you find somebody who loves Jesus, and you can link arms with them as a brother, and you can view each other as co-slaves of Christ, that's a beautiful model for ministry. And Paul says that Tychius is this kind of guy. The kind of guy that you could send and would be a refreshment and an encouragement to the people. His role was to deliver the letter so they could know how Paul was doing. And Paul knew that Tychius would give a, a sense of spiritual help and life to them. So he sends him, he sends him personally as a means of encouragement. I don't know about you, but I have certain people in my life that are like that. You know, their, their mere presence in the room creates encouragement. They, they, they walk in, it's not just that they're the life of the party. No, it's like when they, they come, they, they bring spiritual life with them. And then there's other people who when they walk in the room, it seems like someone dimmed the lights, Right? Or it feels like suddenly, wow, who took the fun out of the party? How, who invited this guy, right? And I want to encourage you to not be the kind of person that when people look on a list for a, a ministry or a small group or something like that, they go, I don't know if I want to serve there. I, I want you to be the kind of people that when people see your name on the list, they're like, oh yeah, that'll be awesome because that person will help me. It will be a spiritual uplift and encouragement. The kind of thing where you go over to someone's house and when you leave, you say to your spouse, boy, that was a great time, wasn't it? I feel so encouraged. As opposed to leaving someone's house and going, okay, let's not do that again, okay? (laughs) So be the kind of people that are filled with refreshment, that fill others with refreshment and encouragement. The next person is Epaphras in verse 12. He's not next in order, but I want to address him next because he's really important. This is the second time we've heard of Epaphras. The first time we heard of him was in chapter 1 and verse 7, where Paul calls him there a, a beloved servant, beloved fellow servant. He, he's a faithful minister. This is chapter 1 and verse 7. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras, remember, was the one who probably planted the church. And the people at Colossae got in his heart, and he loved them and was faithfully praying for them. Look at verse 12. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you. And notice what he says, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And what does he pray? That they would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You know what I love about Epaphras? He didn't have to be on the ground to have his heart moved to pray for his people. He wasn't a hot one day and and cold the next day. The people of Colossae had gotten in his soul, and he prayed fervently for them. They got inside of him such that he had a a spiritual burden for those people. As a result, Paul says that he agonized in prayer. The, The Greek word is agonizomai. You can hear the word agony, can't you? Agony. The idea is that he was laboring or striving. It was hard work, and yet he persevered and he kept doing it. When I hear the word agonizomai, I think of my first sermon in India. It's been a long time since I had preached with a translator. And uh, it was agony, to tell you the truth. And, And here's why. Because while I'm preaching to these seminary students, and I changed my message just before I got up there, I wanted to preach on the subject of suffering. And I felt very inadequate to talk to these pastors about suffering, but I felt like I wanted to encourage them and call them to continue to labor hard. And as I'm speaking to them, and I'm just preaching my heart out, 
they keep shaking their heads like this. Like, no, no, no. And I'm thinking, okay, this is like bombing. And I don't know how to say that in Hindi, but I'm sure it's bad. So, you know, this is, this sermon is bombing. And so I'm, the sweat is like pouring down my side. I feel this, and I have this sense of just sit down, Mark. Just sit down. Just quit. Just stop. And, and yeah, I can't. And I'm preaching and it's just like not going well. Everything I'm saying, they're shaking their head like this. And I'm thinking, this is terrible. Well, then like four days later, I find out that an, uh, an Indian head nod for yes is like this. So they were all saying yes while I was preaching instead of saying no. And it, I was like, oh, okay. So my next sermon I had, I saw them you know, going back and forth like this. I was like, yes, I got them, right? It's going really well. But it was agony. I mean, I'm like dying inside. I think I traveled all this way to deliver a bomb of a sermon, right? This is terrible. You have to continue laboring hard. And some of you, that's what your prayer life feels like for certain people. You feel like it's a bomb, like it's a drag. And I want to call you, don't give up. Be like Epaphras. Be refreshing in the sense that you don't stop praying for a wayward son or daughter. Someone who's, who's God put on your heart? Who's, who's God put in your soul? Agonize for them. Refreshing people are the kind of people, they don't quit, they don't give up, they just keep praying, and they keep seeking the face of God, even though they're weary and wonder, is it making a difference? Epaphras was that kind of man. The next two names are Justice and Aristarchus. We don't know a lot about these men. We know the least about Justice. All we know is that he was a, a man of the circumcision, he was probably a Jewish convert, and he was a follower of Paul. We know a little bit more about Aristarchus. He, he was the guy that happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time consistently in the Apostle Paul's life. Or you might think of it as the right place in the right time. He was there in the darkest moments of Paul's life. He was there in the riot at Ephesus when they were both nearly killed. He was there in the uh, shipwreck. He was on the boat when it uh, ran aground and they were um, castaways and had to swim to the island where Paul was bitten by a snake. And, and then Aristarchus travels with Paul, and he's the only one described as my fellow prisoner. So this guy somehow was Paul's right-hand guy who got to be a part of the riots, the shipwreck, and the imprisonment. That's a great ministry, isn't it? And here he is. He's sticking with the Apostle Paul. And some of you may have found that. You signed up for a ministry, and day one you showed up. It was hard, hard, hard. And you might think, wow, I wish I could find a different ministry. And the reality is God may have called you to be a refreshment in the midst of a hard season. You just can't see how it's all going to work out. The last name is the name Luke. Pretty familiar. Verse 14. He's called the Beloved Physician. I love that. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke that bears his name and also the book of Acts. Phenomenally educated guy. If you've ever taken, if you ever choose to study Greek, you, you won't translate Luke right away because it's hard. It's like upper level language. You'll start in books like 1 John. Luke was a well-educated man. He's a frequent traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And he had a really important role in Paul's life. Listen, Luke wasn't a preacher. He was a godly physician. He used his intellect and his training to be a blessing to Paul. And you know why it was a blessing? It was because the Apostle Paul had some really difficult physical needs. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 11, 24 tells us that Paul was beaten on five different occasions with 40 lashes. Okay, 40 lashes. Think what that would have done to his back. Five different times, 40 lashes. He, he's, he goes on in that text, he says he was beaten with rods three times. Stoned, shipwrecked, sleepless night, suffering hunger and thirst. And here's, the, here's Luke, a physician who's ministering to the Apostle Paul. In fact, he was such a faithful man that he was one of the few people that was there at the end of Paul's life. 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says these rather sad words, only Luke is with me. You know, one of the things I love about College Park is that many of you who are not in pastoral ministry understand that there's a role to be a minister in the marketplace. That we need godly physicians and godly businessmen, godly lawyers, godly teachers. You understand that ministry isn't just about preaching the gospel, it's about living the gospel and being the light of Christ in our community. And I love the way in which some of you have embraced that. And since I've been here, it's been phenomenal to see how you are beloved laborers in medicine and law and education and in the business community. See, the reality is you can do some phenomenal things for the glory of God, and you don't have to because it's not your profession. And that speaks volumes to the world. So realize that with 
the Apostle Paul is a really important man named Luke who had little or no gospel training, but he used his physician's mind for the glory of God. And in so doing was a great refreshment. And what I love is that refreshing people look different and they have different gifts. The question is not whether or not you've been gifted. The question is, do you use those gifts to refresh people and help them? So when I look at this list of men and think about refreshing people, I, I think there's a couple characteristics of, of refreshing people. And I want to call you to think of these and pray through these and ask the Lord if this is what you look like. The first is refreshing people are characterized by personal involvement. All of these men got involved. They, they, they got involved. They offer help. Refreshing people aren't afraid of pain. They're willing just to be there. To be, to be, to be present when things get hard. Or to say it rather simply, they're there so you don't walk alone. Personal involvement is one of the best gifts that you can be. Look, anybody can show up. Okay? Anybody can show up and just be silent and sit there. And if you want to be a refreshment, here's a cue. Show up more and say less. Just be sit and silent and then be a minister by your presence. The second thing is, is there was a clear investment of time. Refreshing people give of themselves. They're willing to adjust their schedules, be inconvenienced and change their plans. If you want to be a refreshing person, you, you've got to release some things in the desire to be inconvenienced or to have people's needs come on a schedule. Looks and people's needs don't come on a schedule. And granted, there needs to be balance so that we don't have burnout and somehow it becomes obsessive. The point is, is that refreshing people, you can't manage people's needs. It also means that there's a sacrifice, a clear sacrifice for others. People who are refreshing, they, they see other people's needs as worthy of costly sacrifice. They value people so much that they hardly even feel like sacrificing. That's the beautiful thing about refreshing people, is that for them it's no big deal, it's just what you should do. It also means wholehearted effort. All of these people, by their offering of themselves, were all in. They were 100%, they were completely committed, and they persevered. See, it's one thing to be refreshing in the easy times. It's another thing to be refreshing when life gets hard. And my question is, are you the kind of person that can be counted on that you're going to be wholehearted? You are in totally. It also means that there was a common passion. They, they knew what was on the line and they knew what was really important and they were willing to sacrifice and give themselves for it. You see, refreshing people understand that pain is only conquered by an eclipsing passion. And how do hard people do hard things? It's because they see the hard thing, and the hard thing doesn't change, but it's that their, their passion for Jesus eclipses the pain, and they don't care about the pain because they love Jesus more. So the battle for refreshing people is to elevate your affections for Jesus such that it trumps the difficulty that's in front of you. And that's why worship and your time with the Lord is so important because you realize how wonderful Jesus is and He's worthy of any sacrifice because your passion for Jesus transcends all other things. And then finally, it is that these are faithful people. Every single one of these men demonstrated a commitment to be faithful. When things got tough, they didn't quit. In fact, difficulties only serve to strengthen the resolve of those who are refreshing. So let me ask you, does that list look like you? Can anyone count on you to be a refreshment? The kind of person who adds spiritual life to others? Or are you the kind of person that, while you may not know it, as you walk down the hallway, people are like, uh-oh, here she comes. <laughs> they just sense that you're a drain. You come to church because you're so needy. Everything about life and it is just you take, 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 take. I want to encourage you to turn that around. And maybe it's time for you to think that one of the reasons that you're here is not just to receive but to give. Not just to take but to also pour out. I want you to be the kind of people that are refreshment like a cool glass of water. When I was in India, I was reminded of a really bad experience in my first mission trip. I went to the country of the Philippines, and I went there on a basketball evangelism team. We were there for a month, and we played basketball. And here's the combination, 95-degree weather, you know, like 300% humidity. That's how it felt. And um, we're playing basketball, and, and that was the, the, the ministry platform. And it was, I've never sweat so much in all my life. It was hot, you know, and you travel along in these jeepneys and you're with 15 other guys in a van, you know, and you're, you're sitting together and you're hot and his legs are touching yours and you're like, dude, let get off of me. You know, it's just like, 
Yuck! It's just gross. It was just gross from day one all the way through. You know what the worst part about it? Was what they served us at halftime for, for drinks. You see, when you're playing basketball, you get done, you want Gatorade or water or something, right? Well, that was before the days of bottled water. And so what would happen is they would bring out these drinks for us. And I saw the drink in, in India. It's Orange Fanta. You know what that is? You know, orange Fanta? Okay, don't ever give me Orange Fanta. Don't ever. You will not be a refreshment to me. You will be mean. Don't give me... Because here's what happens. They, they would bring out Orange Fanta... And so you're sweating, you're exhausted, you sit down at halftime, and they open the bottle, and it's warm orange Fanta. It's like drinking corn syrup and medicine. I mean, you're sitting here like... It's like so disgusting. I was like, no, I'd rather die over here than drink this stuff. And when we'd come on site to play basketball, I'd look over to the sidelines to see what was there. And if it was orange Fanta, I didn't even want to play because it was just so awful. And I, one of my boys got orange Fanta while we were on the trip. They were like, you want to drink that? I was like, no way, not that stuff. And the other hand, every once in a while we'd show up at this team, uh, at this game rather, and the team would bring out, one time they brought a big, big cooler full of cold, purified water. And I remember sitting down at halftime drinking. I was like, oh, my goodness, it tastes so good. And it was energizing. You wanted to play. You wanted to play harder because there was cold water to drink at halftime as opposed to gross orange Fanta. Some of you are so much like Orange Fanta, I can't even believe it, right? You are. You, you, people around you labor and they minister, and, and, and you, you drain energy. And when people take a break, you come alongside, and people are like, man, just give me cold water and get out of here, Orange Fanta. That's what you're like. You're like this draining, energy-depleting resource. And instead, I want to call you to be the kind of people that pour energy and life into others. You know, I want to call you to think about someone other than yourself. And to realize that God wants us to be refreshing people, to pour our lives out for others, and to be the kind of folks that are refreshing, the kind of folks that pour our lives out and helping others for the glory of God. The next list that we have are a group of people I'm calling recovering people. I struggled with what word to use. I started with broken, that didn't fit. I don't know if recovering works, but here's what these people are. These are two men who have a painful history of bad decisions. One of them had ended his recovery and the other had just started. And I want you to hear about them so that you can know, and hear me carefully, broken people are still useful to God. Let me say it again. Broken people, people with baggage, people with bad decisions in their past, people with mistakes that they've made, are still useful to God. And we find here two guys, Mark and Onesimus. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, and he was a former companion of the Apostle Paul. If you've read your Bible at all, you'll know that 14 years earlier, according to Acts 13.13, he had lost face with the Apostle Paul when he refused to go with him and Barnabas to Antioch at Poseidon. What had happened is that Mark had joined Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas were like the mission's dream team. They were like Batman and Robin, Lone Ranger and Tonto. I mean, they were the first guys. And in Antioch, God says, separate Paul and Barnabas to me and send them out. And they went out. And Mark eventually went along with them. And Mark was the guy who, when he wouldn't go, Paul and Barnabas, who had such a close relationship, had such a strong disagreement about Mark that they split ways. Now, just think about that for a moment. you got Paul and Barnabas... Um, stellar church planters known probably all around the Christian world and they split up. I mean, people are people. They're going to ask why, right? And when they ask why, what are they going to say? It was over Mark. So this was the guy that was known around the world as the guy that split up the dream team. He was the guy that split up Batman and Robin, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. This was the team that, you know, no more Kimosabi anymore. These guys are, are split up. They're going separate ways. And Mark was that guy who did that. So it's interesting to me with that as a background that we find Paul in chapter 4 and verse 10 saying this about Mark. Now read those words differently. Regarding Mark, he says, concerning whom you have received instructions. So Paul had said something to them. If he comes to you, welcome him. Why did Paul have to say that? You know why? My guess is that Mark had a black ball reputation with him. 
He was known as the guy that split up the dream team. And eventually, over time, probably because of Barnabas' role in his life, because he was called the son of encouragement, Mark had been restored back into the ministry. And 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul even says, bring Mark because he's useful to me. So something happened where Mark was transformed from a guy who abandoned Paul to a guy that was now useful. And what happens is Paul gives instructions to this church. If he comes to you, welcome him. Here's a guy that even though he had made an immature decision and a mistake in the past, God had used him. Aren't you glad God does that? Can you think of like dumb decisions you've made in the past? I certainly can. Things I look at and say, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. And yet God, by his grace, takes our failures of the past and he still chooses to restore us and use us. The next name is Onesimus. We don't have sufficient time to tell the whole story here, but he was a, a slave. He's actually the guy who's behind the writing of the book of Philemon. The whole book is about, it's a letter to Philemon who was the, the landowner, the master who owned Onesimus. And when Tychius brought the book of Colossians, he also brought the letter to Philemon. And what had happened is that this guy was a runaway slave. He probably stole something from his master. And in a providential meeting, Paul and Onesimus met. Onesimus received Christ. And now Paul was sending him back to Philemon to make things right. And to the church, he says this, verse 9. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Why does he say that? Because the whole church had to know that Onesimus ran away. And now he's sending him back as a convert. He was going to travel with Tychius, deliver the letter. He's going to make things right. And Onesimus, with all of this baggage from his past, Paul is sending back. And Paul says to the church that this guy was very helpful to me. I don't know about you, but I find it really promising that there were some people close to the Apostle Paul who had some baggage in their life. Because the reality is all of us have baggage. We all, we all have things in our past that we're, we're glad are, are gone and, and kind of wish we had never done or things we wish we had never said. Seasons of our life that we look at and are just like, hey, what was I thinking? Mark had made an immature decision. He received a second chance. Onesimus now had a pretty big skeleton in his closet. And yet both men were part, part of Paul's inner circle. You know what I love too, I love about the Apostle Paul is that he had a past. He was the persecutor of the church. And, and how did he work through that? Here's what he said. This is Second Corinthians or First Corinthians 15.9. Here's what he says. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that. I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You know, whenever I get my high school reunion little flyer, I've never gone to my high school reunion, and I really don't want to. You know why? Because that's a season of my life that I just really didn't like. And I look at that season of my life, and I just think I wish I could kind of do that season over again. And I get that high school reunion folder, and it just, or that flyer, or that, that publication, and it just creates all these negative emotions inside, because that's the season of my life. If I could rewrite, I'd rewrite that one. And what I find helpful and hopeful in this text is that uh, the text, 1 Corinthians 15, says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. So what do you do if you've, you're in recovery mode? What do you do with some of the things from the past that you wish you could do over? Big things and small things. Maybe just a season of your life you just didn't really like how you were, immature and fickle. Here's what you do. First thing. Number one, preach the gospel to your heart. The reality is we've all had pasts. We've all made mistakes. And the hope of our life now is not perfection. Hear me. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to know the Savior who was. The hope of our life is not perfection. The hope of our life is the cross. So when the past comes, preach the cross to your heart. I mean, that's as practical as when a flyer for your high school reunion comes. Remind yourself, you are what you are by the grace of God. It also means that we're to learn from our past and grow. Meaning, we're not to let the past bind us. But we are instead to humbly, slowly, and definitively grow into maturity. To say, that's how I was. But that's not who I am now. And realize that that's the essence of the beauty of redemption. It is that God takes messed up, broken people and he turns them into beautiful emblems of his grace. And then finally, I want you to pray for eventual usefulness. 
Why do I say that? I say pray for eventual usefulness because I don't want you to make one mistake, which would be, well, my past doesn't matter. I can just do whatever I want. No, there's some things that relate to consequences from your past that may have long-term consequences in the future. And some of you are so in a hurry to get the past behind you that you want to be useful right now, and God hasn't released you yet to be useful. And so I want you to pray for eventual usefulness. I want you to not be filled with despair as if you'll never be useful, but I also want you to wait on God's timing for Him to decide when you are useful. Psalm 51 says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. The hope, even though you've got a past, is that one day you'll be able to talk about your past or the lessons that you learned with this eclipsing joy of what you've become, and your past will become a platform to tell people about the beauty of how you've changed. But be sure it's more than just a week. Or a month. Or in some cases, maybe even a year. To be able to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. So here's two guys that were broken, recovering people, and God still used them. And hear me, He can still use you. So embrace humility and the imperfection that comes with your humanity. And ask God in time, as Isaiah says, He can take, He can bring beauty from ashes. Mark and Onesimus are examples of that. And the last name is a single name named Demas. And this is what I'm calling disappointing people. Now, Demas is the kind of name that you would probably miss if you were just reading through the passage, because he's just a little afterthought in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. It tells us that Demas was with Paul. He was there. He was part of that inner circle. And you might think, well, what's the big deal with Demas? Nothing is really said about it, right? Nothing said here. But remember that I said before that Paul would be released and then rearrested, and the last book that he would write would be 2 Timothy? Well, look at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 4 verse 9, because Demas is a warning. His name should send a little bone chill in our hearts. Because 2 Timothy 4 9 Remember, Paul's writing at the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy. It's a, it's a heartfelt letter to a dearly beloved son in the faith. And he says this in verse 9, 2 Timothy 4, Do your best to come to me soon. Verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Hear those words. Demas in love with this present world. I mean, Demas is going to find out that Paul says that. Right? I mean, that's not going to be hidden somewhere. He's going to find out that Paul, in a letter, and then an inspired letter, right? In love with this present world. What was Demas' problem? Well, we don't really know. What we do know from the text is that something had happened. Maybe it was that the persecution got too great. He couldn't stand the, um, the, the, the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. What we, what we do know is that he left him. And he says that he deserted me, which means to abandon, to leave in a strait, to, to leave someone exposed. He says he deserted me. And the reason, he says, is because he was in love with this present world. In other words, he loved something more than he loved the Apostle Paul and the Gospel ministry. And Demas, although he was faithful in the book of Colossians, because of, becomes an example of unfaithfulness in 2 Timothy. You know what that means? That means that a congregation this side, there's, there's a couple Demases here. When difficulties come, when trials come, hardship in your marriage, or sin in a spouse's life, or difficulty in a friend's life, you're going to bolt. Because right now, the only reason you're here is because Jesus gives you what you want. And when hard things come, you're going to say, well, that's what I signed up for. And then you're going to bolt. It's also a warning. It's a warning that there's a little heart of Demas in all of us. The fact that he's listed as a disciple in one book and a deserter in the next should remind us of what can happen to any of us. That that persevering and and holding on to Christ in difficulty is something we need to strive for and help other people strive for as well, lest we all become known as deserters. You know what else, though, when I read this? It's also an encouragement. Because I don't know about you, but I've faced betrayals before. I'm sure you have too. Maybe a son or a daughter. Maybe a close friend. Maybe a ministry colleague. And, And when that happens, you can tend to think, what's wrong with me? How come they're abandoned? What's wrong with me that they've abandoned? And sometimes when people abandon, yeah, it's never that they say as they leave, hey, i got a problem, i got a real spiritual condition, I'm just going to leave you, I'm going to abandon you, okay? It's not usually like that. Usually, they, they point fingers and say it's about you. 
People who say, you failed me. You're, you're, this is what the gospel is. And, and, and they point fingers. And as hard as we try, sometimes those things like stick and they hurt. And we begin to think, well, maybe it was me. Maybe I'm the issue. And it's helpful to be reminded that the Apostle Paul was betrayed. He was abandoned. It's also helpful to remember that even Jesus was. And while we should never just arrogantly think, well, it's all their fault, it's also an encouragement that even the best of people have folks that desert them. Even perfect parents have kids that make bad decisions and walk away. And if you have a problem with that, then you have a problem with the Garden of Eden. Because here you have the perfect parent and two kids that did everything wrong. You see, the encouragement here is that people abandon other people even though who they're abandoning did everything right. And I want to call you today, College Park, to not be the kind of people who create such discouragement and and pain in people's lives. I remember the name of the first person that, that left the church that I was pastoring over a silly issue. I remember, the, I remember the first time my kids ever saw me cry about a church ministry issue. I remember the place that I was when I told my wife that they're, they're leaving. And I want to encourage you to not be the kind of person that abandons people in their hour of need. You see, the reality is, is that ministry is about people, even hard people. Sometimes they're disappointing people, like Demas. Sometimes they're recovering people, like Mark and Onesimus. And then sometimes they're like refreshing people. And if God's put some refreshing people in your life, little word to you, don't take them for granted. Tell them, man, you are refreshing to me. Thank God you're not like Fanta. You are so refreshing. You're like a crisp, cool drink of water in my life. Thank you for being there. And when they show up and you express gratitude to them for for their, their intervention in your life, people can be helpful. They're like an oasis of beautiful grace in the midst of a desert of despair. So when God gives you some close brothers or sisters who help hold up your arms, don't take that for granted. Because you never know the way in which that's going to just minister grace to people's hearts. In 2004, when we discovered that our daughter had died in Sarah's womb, the doctor sent us to the hospital to induce delivery. And in that moment, I, as I was writing the sermon, I couldn't help but thinking about this moment in my life. Walking into the OB unit, knowing you're going to deliver a dead baby is a traumatic event beyond belief. The nurses were ushering us toward a specific room that was more private, and I'd been through the chaplaincy class, so I knew which room they used. And as I'm coming around the corner, out of the waiting room comes two of my staff guys. They'd beaten us to the hospital. And the sight of their face was like a cool drink of water. They, they walked right up to the room. We talked. We embraced. We cried. Then the nurse came and she opened the door. And that's when I saw on the side of the wall, a little on, on the doorpost, a little placard, a little flower that is a code for stillbirth. So it's, a, it's a gracious way to tell the whole floor there's something hard happening in here. Just be careful. And when I saw that card, as I'm standing outside that room, my knees buckled. Never had that happen before. I didn't faint, but it was like I couldn't even stand up. It, my, I, my body started to tremble. And these two brothers on either side of me, they caught me. Right underneath the arms. They opened the door. My wife walked in. And these two brothers literally carried me across the threshold of that door into the room, sat us down on the bed, laid hands on us, and prayed for us. And I find that to be a beautiful image of what refreshing people do. When you begin to collapse, they grab you and they go, you don't have to walk. I'm going to carry you. In College Park today, I want to call you to be that kind of person. That ministry is essentially about doing life and ministry together. That you can grab a hold of other people and say, look, we're going to do this. We're going to do it together. And when God puts those kind of people in your life, don't you ever take them for granted. Because they're a gift of grace. Oh Lord, for more helpful people we plead. 
for more helpful people that we need, we ask in Jesus' name for you to provide them to us. And we pray that you'd put people on our hearts who we could be real brothers and sisters to. Lord, help us, help us with the needy people who have so many needs that at times it just feels like we're just pouring, pouring, pouring. Give us enough grace to keep pouring out. And help them, Lord, so that they don't have so many needs. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today who are in recovery. Who the devil tells them a lie. You're you're gone, man. You're you're never going to be used again. And Lord, just remind them, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Help us to preach the cross to our hearts. And then, oh Lord, for those whose whose pathway looks like a Demas, I pray that you'd help them to realize they are on a fast track to nowhere. Pull them back today. Beloved church, while we're just in an attitude of prayer, after we're done here this morning, there's going to be some folks up at front, up the front here with name tags and little College Park logo. They're here to pray for you. And if you're here today and you just need some refreshment, these people are, they're like, like cool spigots of water. They're ready just to pour out grace. Or maybe you would need to come and just say to them, I'm struggling with the weight of a needy friend and I just need more. Maybe a spouse. So many needs. And you don't feel like you've got enough. They can just pray for you. Or maybe you're here today and you need to repent of how you've abandoned people, walked away from your marriage, abandoned your kids, walked away from a friend. Whatever you need, they're here. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the restorer of all things that are broken, and in you we find all life, hope, and spiritual health. We love you, Jesus, and are thankful that you don't give up on us. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. And let me give you an assignment this morning. As you leave today, as you walk on the hallways, you run into somebody, I want you to give them a great encouragement. I want you to walk up to your brother or sister and say, thanks for not being Fanta in my life. God bless you. Have a great day.